it's interesting, we are doing this lecture divina today in the season of Advent, which is the time which, in which it's sort of the sweet and sour season of our life. The, the joy of the resurrection, the joy of, of our life in Christ, the joy which we look forward to in Easter time marks that season as a, a time of great celebration, as also with the season of Christmas. And then Lent, of course, is strictly penitential. It deals with the, the sufferings, the, the passion of the Lord. And it uh, prepares us to experience our life here in this world as uh, our experience of the joy and glory of the great feast days prepares us for our time with the Lord for eternity. But our life really is a mixture of both. It is both sweet and sour. It is the sweetness of the Lord and our experience of him and our preparing to encounter him in glory, but in the midst of our struggles in this world. Uh, that's why in every church we very wisely have, in any Catholic church around the world, around the walls we have the Stations of the Cross. That's where we live. We live in the midst of the Stations of the Cross, one step after another. But then we look forward to glory, to the altar of the Lord and the tabernacle as a sign of the glory yet to come, and which comes to us as a foretaste of that in the Holy Eucharist. Well, that's what we have in the passage around the middle of the Gospel of Mark. We start off with a message which our Lord gives not just to his disciples, he's pretty wide, he says to all of the people and his disciples. And it is the message, take up your cross, come follow me. So we're moving through the Lenten dimension of our life in Christ, the suffering, the sharing with that passion of the Lord. But then of course he goes up to the mountain of transfiguration and the disciples experience a foretaste at least of the glory of the Lord. And that experience of transfiguration is what we ourselves can experience as well through the sacraments and most perfectly, of course, through the Holy Eucharist. But then you don't stay on the top of the mountain, you gotta get back down again. And they head down where they experience again suffering, pain, uh, all kinds of things. There's a great painting of the transfiguration in the Vatican, the Vatican Art Museum, just beside the uh, regular museum right at the very end, a painting by Raphael. And you see the glory of the Lord at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, basically what we, we have in today's reading. And then at the bottom, you see people suffering, struggling. The people that Pope Francis so often refers to as those who are in need of the church as a kind of a field hospital in the midst of a battle. And those two dimensions work together in our daily life in Christ in a very special way in the season of Advent season of joy, season of penance. And so it is appropriate that at this time we will enter into the time of Lectio Divina, meditating upon the cross and upon the glory of the transfiguration. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let us take all of those cares, those worries that so occupy our minds and hearts so that we cannot encounter and recognize others or the Lord, but are so absorbed in ourselves. Away with them all, let's just throw them overboard. Let us prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord into our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus.
Let us ask the Lord to forgive us those sins which are barriers that prevent him from reaching us. May he find a pathway to our hearts that he may enter in as we listen to these words of sacred scripture. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became glistening, intensely white as no fuller on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man should have risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What do these words say? To our head that we know the Lord, to our heart that we love him, to our hands that we serve him. We always need to think of that when we, we read the words of sacred scripture. Head, heart, and hands. Know, love, and serve. Faith, 
hope, and love. And so as we reflect on these, this passage, let's just start with a, a little quiet time to think of that whole passage. Take up your cross in the transfiguration. What does it tell me about Jesus? How does it draw me to love Jesus? And how does it call me to serve him in my daily life? And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples, not just his disciples, not even, certainly not the three at the end of the Mount of Transfiguration. They have a role, Peter, James, and John. And so do the disciples, but he calls a multitude. His mission is to all. That's why it's so great when we see the great symbol of our Catholic faith. Not a, a, an elegant little church, but the big barn of a church in Rome, St. Peter's with the big arms reaching out for everyone. He called to him the multitude. We can't become a tight little sect of the saved. We are called by the Lord to reach out as he does to the multitude and his disciples. As we say in our own pastoral plan here, we need to care for the gathered, but reach out to the scattered. If we just care for the gathered, for the disciples, that's good, we got to do that. But then we become inward turning. If we just reach out, we may not know who we are and what we're called to do. So we need to care for the gathered, reach out to the scattered. He called to him the scattered, the multitude, and the gathered, his disciples. In our life, we need to have both dimensions. So often in our own personal lives, we can be either inward turning or isolating ourselves from the world or our parishes can be a little self-referential. But we need as disciples to invite in the multitude. And that's a, an important message for each one of us. It's one reason I like to have churches and stick out. You know, that's why we're why we're surrounded by all this scaffolding right now. We gotta welcome, reach out to the multitude, be a sign, a beacon on a hill, and not just hide within, within the church. He called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray about those words. We, his disciples, as we invite in the multitude of everyone, really, this is what's needed for everyone, not just the few. Three things I ask of you, he says. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Number one, deny yourself. He said to them, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Let's not just become comfortable absorbers of everything. I often think, you know, we're called consumers. That's sort of the standard term for who we are. We're a bunch of consumers. Isn't that an awful thing? I think, you know, what a thing to have on the tombstone. Here lies a consumer being consumed, I would think. But surely there's more to life than that. We need to deny ourselves, not be 
feeding ourselves, not be focusing on the ego. If any man would come after me, the first thing is let him deny himself. This is the penitential way. This is Advent, this is Lent, this is the sacrament of reconciliation. That's why we begin Mass with Lord have mercy. Let us deny ourselves. Let us get away from those things that have held on to us and take over our lives. And number two, let him take up his cross. Take up his cross. That's an interesting way of getting the multitude to become disciples. First of all, you've got to deny yourself. You can't sort of say, me, me, me. And second, you've got to take up the cross. And he's not just talking of sort of a little cross, like, you know, we all have our cross to bear. He's talking, take up the cross. He's, he's actually inviting them to martyrdom, the ultimate witness. Take up your cross. And also the other crosses, we do speak of this as well, that we have. It doesn't quite say here, I never promised you a rose garden, but this is sort of the Churchillian view of the gospel here. I have nothing to offer but blood, sweat, toil, and tears. But that's that, isn't it? He's not giving false advertising. If we think that our Christian faith is a kind of a, you know, you kind of glide along, filled with self, and we can, we can, that's the trouble. We can have a kind of a feel-good gospel. What's the point of that? Jesus said, deny yourself. Don't give in always to me, me, me. This is why we have fasting. Take up your cross. Be ready to die for Christ, as our brothers and sisters are doing so many of them. In many parts of the world, particularly the Middle East, they are taking up their cross. They're being crucified for Christ. For us, it's a figure of speech. For them, it's not. And it shouldn't be for us a figure of speech either in terms of something shallow. And then follow me. Earlier on, he says, come, follow me. Now he fills in the details. If you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and then come follow me. So let's reflect on these words. And think of how seriously we're living our Christian faith. Are we gliding along? Are we kind of cheap Christians? You know, not really taking it intentionally, seriously, whatever our local circumstance of life may be, and it may be this or that. This is the call to discipleship. And we need to meditate upon it and apply it to our own lives. We can also apply it to how other people are living the Christian faith, but that's not recommended. We've got enough trouble doing it on our own. This should be a preparation for a reconciliation, not an examination of our neighbors. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's think about that in our own life and how we can live it more fully. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. This is a paradox. This is like G.K. Chesterton was always saying things that 
seem to be wrong until you think more deeply and you say, oh, how right that is. To die, we must die to live. The seed must die before it is alive. So many times our Lord gives us these paradoxes, these things that seem so strange, but that challenge us to think till finally the light goes on and we say, ah, that's what he means. For whoever would save his life will lose it. If we're always trying to be safe, save our lives, we'll lose it. We try to insure against all kinds of things. What a way to live. We try to always be cautious and focused in on ourselves. Then we've, we're not living, we're just existing. For whoever would save his life, play it safe, be inward turning, then you're not alive at all. We might as well live until we die rather than die until we die. What's the point of an empty train traveling through the countryside? Let's fill it up with something there. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Let's just lose our life, just abandonment to divine providence, leaping into it all, lose his life. And it could mean, of course, as it does for many of our brothers and sisters, martyrdom. I often think of the final scene at, in uh, the movie, and also I guess it would be to some degree in the play, but the, mo the movie, A Man for All Seasons, where it gives a list of all the various people, historical people, who are described in the, in the, the story of Thomas More. Thomas More, of course, lost his life in the age of, I think, 56. Gone. But he's alive. And Richard Rich, the one who got a few more extra years by betraying him, died in his bed and became Lord Chancellor of England and got rich. But which one of them was alive and which one was dead? Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. We have to be able to make that kind of judgment. So let's reflect upon that. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And now one of the most famous lines of the gospel uses a challenge, challenge I think Ignatius Loyola launched out to the successful Francis Xavier, changed his life by quoting this line. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to be successful, to do all those things, and yet really lose his life? Not his life in the sense of the heart still ticking, but his life. What does it profit to gain all the bubbles and all those things, pile them up, but be dead inside? It's a great line in the, um, in the 
Father Brown's story by G.K. Chesterton called The Queer Feet. It's about uh, some people who really were people who'd gained the whole world but really didn't have much inside. It says at a certain point in the story that each one of them looked within his soul and saw it as a small dried pea. And that's what it could be for each one of us. You're going to have all this stuff. They're dining out at a big fancy restaurant. They look within and what is there this little thing? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Of course, this is where uh, the very British or very English patriotic Thomas More, at least in the movie, but I don't think he ever said it in, in real life, was making a crack at, uh, at Wales when he says, in the movie at least, to Richard Rich, who had been paid for his betrayal by being made Lord Lieutenant of Wales, Richard, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? But Richard, for Wales? But I don't know. I think a Welshman would probably say that at least that's something very, very valuable. <laughs> but we've got to look at that. What really are we doing in our life? Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit life itself? For what can a man give in return for his life? To be alive. To be alive. Not just to exist, but to be alive. Every moment until finally time is up in this world and we experience eternal life. For what can a man give in return for his life? Let's think for a moment of what's important in our life. What are we piling up? Where is our priority? And ask the Lord to help us and ask the Lord to forgive us when we've gotten it wrong, as we so often do. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes on the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so often in sacred scripture, and including here when he talks about the cross and the life of discipleship, and just before he gets to the transfiguration, the Lord talks about judgment day, when the Lord comes with all his holy angels. And that's where we are called to account. Our life in Christ cannot be simply a gooey confection. There's a challenge in it. We're stewards of time. We each have given, we're given a small portion of time. And it's used up. How have we used it when finally time's up? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was sick or in prison, did you visit me? Have we been faithful in the midst of this adulterous and sinful generation? This is something we don't often think of the Lord Jesus speaking this way, but he does. He pulls no punches when it comes to the reality of an unfaithful generation. The world in which we live is not a kind of a spiritual Disneyland where everything is great. The Apocalypse, which is the book I've spent a lot of my life studying, 
There's the heavenly Jerusalem and there's Babylon the Great. We're citizens of Jerusalem, but we find ourselves stuck in Babylon the Great temporarily. So we've got to live according to Jerusalem and not get caught up with the values of the culture of death, the values of the culture of me, of the ego, of all those things. We're swimming in a toxic sea. We need to be attentive to that. Being naive is not a virtue for a Christian. That doesn't mean we always have to be trashing the world and saying, woe is you and all that. But we got to understand that this is not a, kind of a simple little thing that we're living, this Christian life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But while we're living, we need to be attentive to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world means different things in those two different ways. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's just spend a moment now, a little repentant moment, saying, Lord, forgive me as I look upon the coming of the Lord with his holy angels. Forgive me for the times that I have been too much caught up in this adulterous generation where I've been unfaithful myself to the love of God, the love of neighbor. I haven't been taken up my cross, but I've been putting crosses on other people. I haven't been denying myself, but I've been denying other people, turning away from them. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The kingdom of God has come with power. Not the power of military force or dictatorship or things like that. But has the kingdom of God come with power within our own lives? Remember the beginning of the gospel where the Lord says, repent for the kingdom of God is near at hand. The kingdom of God comes with power to transform, to shake us, to make us what we're called to be, to give us the courage to take up our cross and deny ourselves. Give us the courage to follow Christ with integrity. Remember G.K. Chesterton once said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. So we think of that. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his garments became glistening, intensely white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. And he gives them a flash of his glory as they come up the high mountain, as we think of Moses going up the mountain to have an experience of theophany, of the glory of the Lord at the top of Mount Sinai. And we think of Elijah going up the mountain 
to experience the coming of the Lord, not in thunder and lightning, but in a gentle breeze. Mountains are often seen as places where we encounter the Lord, whether it be the Lord speaking to us his words on the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, or where we, we see him going up the mountain to pray. He spends the night in prayer with his heavenly Father. The mountain of the Lord. In the Psalms, we hear so much of the mountain of the Lord. Let us come to the mountain of the Lord to encounter him. And here he was in the midst of all these struggles, take up your cross and follow me, and facing this and realizing he's moving on to Jerusalem, which begins right after this. So before he does that, he comes up the mountain to the place where we encounter the Lord. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became glistening intensely white as no fuller on earth could bleach them. After six days, Peter, James, and John, this is certainly the gathered. These are ones who need to be strengthened. And yet even with this awareness of the glory of the Lord, which they see in the transfiguration, we can see how Peter denied the Lord even after having experienced this. And we need in our own lives these places where we can, can go to encounter Christ. Each one of us needs a kind of a mountain of the Lord we go to. A quiet time, the Sabbath time, which is like a palace in time, a holy hour, which whether it is physically going up a mountain or not, it is that coming to a place of encounter with the Lord. I remember once a visiting bishop wanted to pray in our cathedral, and he noticed two things, as one notices every day if you come into this cathedral. The number of people praying before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, coming before the mountain of the Lord, for that experience of theophany, of the experience of the glory of the Lord. And he also noticed a lot of people going to confession. Deny yourself, take up your cross, come follow me, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and come up to the mountain of the Lord to spend a little time with the Lord. We need both of those in our lives. That's what we have at Mass when we start with Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, the repentential dimension. Then we listen to the word of God as he speaks to us and illuminates the path. And then finally we come up to the mountain of the Lord and he comes to us personally, the Lord himself in the communion of the Holy Eucharist. It's all there in the experience and the dynamic of every time we celebrate the Holy Eucharist. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became glistening intensely white as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Just as we are here now in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, let's just spend a few moments in adoration of our Lord. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid. Here they are on the mountain of the Lord, and there is the Lord in divine conversation. It's interesting, even at the top of the mountain of the Lord, we have people talking with one another. Elijah, the great prophet, Moses, the lawgiver, Jesus, the Lord. And they're not just sort of looking at one another, they're talking with one another. Right in the very reality of our life, we have the divine conversation. We're called to do that. That's that unity of self that we, that we find. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. It'd be interesting to know what they were saying. We can kind of spend a little prayer time and speculating on that. If we're following the, you know, the Jesuit tradition where you have to sort of imagine all these things, uh, I guess you could do that, figure out what, what, were, what were Moses and Elijah saying to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, something I am sure was nothing as interesting as what Moses and Elijah said to Jesus. Peter comes blundering in, as he usually does. Peter's the most consoling apostle. He always gets it wrong. He's so much like every one of us. You know, you never can think of, he has kind of this inherent ability to blunder along. Whether it's saying, you know, I'll never deny you, and then he does it, and oh, you know, he's running across the water, then he starts thinking and he jumps out of the boat and then he oh dear there's Peter so that's why I think the Lord gave him the the keys of the kingdom I don't think he'd ever entrust them to someone who's got it together if there's anyone who really doesn't have it together it's Peter so Peter sort of comes he kind of aims low <laughs> he wants to build these booths which is probably a reference to the the feast of tabernacles this tradition the Jewish people of this day have of little booths where they sort of like the, the, the journey across the desert is a reminder of that. But it's not perhaps the most profound thing he could have thought of. So Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. They were exceedingly afraid. Here in the top of the mountain of the Lord, we find uh, the good old-fashioned human condition. That's every man, that's you, that's me, along with Moses, Elijah, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He kind of invites them in to be present. There's something kind of homey about that, and I think we should, we should be thankful. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. This is like at the, the baptism of the Jordan River, the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You know, the old thing, listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. Listen to him. That's not much to ask, is it? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And yet, they were so caught up in so many things that they did not listen. And a cloud overshadowed them. This is a reminder to us of the, the coming of the Lord and the clouds on the top of Mount Sinai, 
the cloud of the presence of God's majesty. This is a sign of the divine presence, the cloud of unknowing into which we enter. But we cannot find our way on our own, but we need help to find the presence of God in the midst of the cloud. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Let's just spend a moment in resolve to do what we're told. Let's pray the Lord that we may listen to him. Every day, all the time, in his sacred scriptures, in the way he speaks to us in our experiences, is the way he speaks to us in prayer. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then, of course, go and live accordingly. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Back now, having had this great vision, this great experience of the glory of the Lord, it's over. And what they see is Jesus only. Although they've been given some help at least to recognize who he is. It's like on the road to Emmaus when they, they were walking with the Lord right beside them and they didn't recognize him. They were hearing him. They weren't listening to him then either until finally they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. We need to listen to Jesus we need to recognize him. And we should not need the glory experience all the time. They just get a little burst. Doesn't say how long it lasts. This is dessert. This is the mountaintop. And we need it occasionally. But if we live our life on the top of Mount Tabor, experience the transfiguration, I don't think anyone could take that for very long. I don't know of anyone who's had much getting that. Most of the time we're back at the bottom of the mountain. That's where we're going to call to serve the Lord. The, wor the world of deny yourself, take up your cross, come follow me. But he gives us a boost every once in a while. But we don't live on that. We live on, that helps us. And if any of us happens to be a mystic and has ecstatic experiences, well, great, congratulations. But uh, meanwhile... <laughs> back down into the valley. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man should have risen from the dead. You kind of wonder why he says that a lot in the Gospel of Mark. It's called the Messianic secret. He's always telling them, don't tell anyone. You know, we're not sure exactly why. In fact, Cardinal Ambrosic wrote a stunning book called The Hidden Kingdom on the messianic secret. Why did he do this? Why did Jesus tell them to do that? And it may have been, you know, to some degree, because if they were saying this is the Messiah, people would get it wrong. They would aim low. They would look upon him as a kind of a, you know, earthly king, like when they, you know, wanted to hurry him off to become a kind of a leader against the Romans or something like that. But it may be also that 
if Peter, James, and John probably didn't really know what this divine experience meant, it's very unlikely they'd be able to help other people to know it either. We don't really recognize Christ most profoundly in those divine moments until we recognize him at the bottom of the mountain. And I think there's a bit of a problem in our spiritual life if we're always running up the mountaintop. And God invites us from time to time. But if we're always hunting for mountaintops, it's a kind of exhausting way to live our Christian life. His basic rule is, if you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and come follow me. It's not, if you would follow me, spend your time on the top of the mountain building booths for Elijah and Moses and me. So we experience this glory dimension, but it's not religion. It's just a dimension, a pulling back of the veil, a help. And I think the Lord from time to time gives it to us. And I'm always consoled at the thought of Mother Teresa, who apparently had twice in her life mountaintop experiences. Once when she founded her order, she was riding on a train and getting this, on a train of all places, she got this sort of vision. And then once, about 30 years later, and that was it. <laughs> she spent every day an hour of adoration before her Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, then the celebration of Mass, the rest of the time on the street. And apparently, decade after decade after decade, as she grew in holiness, she'd never had a mountaintop experience of Ah, here I am, Lord, lifted up, wafted away. So it's good for us to think about that because there's a kind of a, an approach to religion that says unless you get the mountaintop and re reproduce it every day, you're really not, you're not religious. And of course, you can also, you can produce this type of a phony, a false version of the transfiguration with, music, drugs, uh, you name it. It's the falsest people chasing after a quick and false ecstasy. And that's not what it's all about. It's a gift of God to help us get down the mountain and back to denying ourselves, picking up our crosses and following him. They just needed this boost, but it's not religion. It's a help. That's why uh, there's a great homily by Cardinal Newman when he was an Anglican, his early parochial and plain sermons called The Right Use of Religious Emotion. And basically what it is, is just to prime the pump, but don't depend on it. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man should have risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And here they see Elijah in glory, but Elijah during his lifetime before the glory was trying to deal with Ahab and Jezebel and was being persecuted and fleeing for his life. And John the Baptist, who was Elijah come again, who dressed like Elijah, used the prophetic style of Elijah, 
He spoke truth to power and Herod killed him. Herod was not denying himself. I don't think Herod and Herodias were, or the dance of the seven veils and the various parties at Herod's palaces. This is not exactly deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is the adulterous generation. And in the midst of that came John with courage, the purity of heart, Elijah, the prophet speaking to his society. And that prophetic dimension is something we need to think about ourselves. That may well be what Christ is telling us in the first part about deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Be a bit more like Elijah, like John the Baptist, who was really Elijah made present just before the time of Christ. And that's what he's talking about there. The one who knows who he is, he is not the Messiah. He says of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. He says, there is the Lamb of God, not I am the Lamb of God, but there he is. He points, he makes straight the way of the Lord. He does not presume to be who he is not. He is pure of heart, he is simple. And he knows God and speaks of God in an age and a world where people do not want to hear that. Maybe Elijah, maybe John the Baptist is a message for each one of us, especially in this Advent time. We need to be more like that. And then we will be what the Lord is talking about at the beginning of this passage. And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his garments became glistening intensely white as no fuller on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man should have risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? 
And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? For I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 